I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Second uh, Timothy. Second um, Timothy chapter two, verses eight through thirteen. A message I've called um, "Keep Up the Good Work." Uh, we, we've dedicated the building. Now we need to dedicate ourselves so that we can put it to full use for the extension of the Great Commission. And so I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. And the text I want to look at is 2 Timothy uh, 2, verses 8 through 13. It's a little biographical on Paul's part. This is his last letter. It's about AD 67. Unlike his first imprisonment, Paul has got no sense that he's going to escape the noose this time. And so he writes to his protege, his apprentice, his son in the faith, and, and he kind of encourages him to take up the baton and to carry on the legacy of Paul's apostolic work. And we've got a little bit of a biographical um, sketch here by Paul uh, and, and some uh, theology intertwined. And, and in these verses, I think we have four motivations to ministry, things that will keep us uh, keeping on, things that will help us to keep up the good work. So read with me. I'm reading from the New King James translation of Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the Word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I like the story um, that comes out of the year, uh, years that Frank Howard was the sports director at Clemson University in South Carolina. And at one point, someone approached Frank Howard uh, about the idea of adding rowing to one of their sports disciplines. And he didn't give it much thought, and he gave a very quick answer, and here was his answer. He said, we're not going to have any sports at Clemson University where you sit down and go backwards. <laughs> I like that answer. We're not going to have any sports at Clemson University where you sit down and go backwards. And that's my word of encouragement to you. I don't believe it will be the case, but nevertheless, I want to challenge you on a day like this, when we've kind of reached a high watermark in the history of Placerita Bible Church, whatever you do, don't sit down and go backwards. Spurgeon talked about baptism, but it has an application to today. Spurgeon said about baptism, it must be a milestone, but not a millstone. And a day like today must be a milestone, but not a millstone. You can't sit down and polish your medals. You've got to keep moving, keep going forward, keep up the good work. We've already dedicated ourselves to that, haven't we? But I want to go back over some of the words first pronounced in 1968 at the dedication of the first building at Placerita Baptist Church. I hope this morning you're going to keep up the good work of the hallowing of, of Christian families, the teaching and guiding of the young, the perfecting of the saints, the conversion of the sinner, the proclamation of the everlasting gospel at home throughout the nation and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I hope you'll rededicate yourself to that. I hope you won't sit down and go backwards. I hope that self-satisfaction and self-conceit will not settle upon this congregation. And so to that end, I want to come to 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 13, where Paul encourages Timothy to go forward, where Paul encourages Timothy to have an enduring, effective ministry for Jesus Christ. As I've said, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter, right? It's about A.D. 67. He's going through his second imprisonment, 
Um, he's about to lay down his sword, but as he, lay down, as he lays down his sword, he hands the ministry baton off to young Timothy, and he encourages him to be strong. He encourages him to be enduring. He encourages him to keep up the good work. Paul has done his work. Paul has run his course. Now Timothy must do that himself. If you look at chapter 2, in fact, the theme is faithfulness. The theme is fixedness. The theme is keep up the good work. Look at verse 1. Be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Compete with the, the, the commitment of an athlete. Look at verse 6. Work with the tenacity of a farmer. Look at verse 10, endure all things. Look at verse 12, endure so that you might reign with Jesus Christ. Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure, to keep up the good work. And he needed to hear this for several reasons. Number one, his own temperament worked against him. Timothy was rather fragile as a minister of the gospel. He was given to fear. He was sometimes trapped in other people's approval of him. That's why Paul had to tell him, don't let anybody despise your youth. That's why Paul had to say in chapter 1, verse 7 of this letter, you know what? Stir up, fan into a flame the gift that God has given to you, which was identified at the laying on of my hands, because God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. But there was a certain timidity, a certain passivity, a certain fragility uh, with Timothy, and he needed to be called to endurance, to keep up the good work. A second reason would be that he was about to lose the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been a handreel for Timothy as a young minister of the gospel. Now this great stalwart of the faith is about to lay down his sword. The time of my departure is at hand, Timothy. Now you're on your own, son. I want you to run the race like I did. I want you to guard the gospel like I did. If you've read the, the life of Stonewall Jackson, the great Confederate leader, you know that he was returning from a nighttime patrol when one of the Confederate sentries shot him by accident. He lost his left arm and ultimately died of an infection. But the word came to General Lee that, that Stonewall Jackson had lost his left arm in, in a shooting accident. And General Lee famously said, General Jackson has lost his left arm. I have lost my right. And I think that's how Timothy felt. He was losing his right arm. He was losing his, his mentor, his pillar in the faith. Given his timidity, that was a challenge. And then there was another reason why I think this call to faithfulness and fixedness and keeping up the good work was necessary, because many were, were abandoning the faith. Many within the church were compromising. There was an increased apostasy going on around the time of the writing of this letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. It's an amazing statement. All in Asia have abandoned me. In chapter 2, verses 17, uh, in chapter 2, uh, verse 17, he, he talks about um, those who have uh, spread uh, theological cancer, Hymenius and Philetus. They have actually uh, denied the, the resurrection by saying it's already past, it's not future. When you get to chapter 4, verse 3, we're told there will come a time within the church when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll want it all sugar-coated, candy-coated. They want teachers that, that massage their egos and mend their emotions. Then on top of that, you have a hostile culture. Chapter 3, Timothy, know that in the last days, and, and Timothy was in the last days in a technical sense because the last days begin with the the first coming of Lord Jesus, leading us right up to the second coming of Lord Jesus. But here we've got a description of what it's going to be like. It's going to be perilous, uncomfortable. Men will be lovers of themselves, money, boasters, blasphemers, 
unforgiving, slanderers, lacking in self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Timothy was swimming upstream culturally. So, I just want you to, 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 to get that so that when we look at these verses where he's calling Timothy to endurance, and he gives them reasons to endure, reasons to keep up the good work, I want you to keep that in the, in the background. Timothy was being called to fight one more round. Now, there's four motivations to faithful, fruitful, fixed ministry in this passage. Number one, the empowering reality of the resurrection. Number two, the unstoppable power of the gospel. Number three, the glorious work of evangelism. Number four, the promise of eternal reward. Or as you have it in a homiletical outline in your notes, I like to alliterate. I'm old school that way. You've got a glorious win. You've got a glorious word. You've got a glorious work. And you've got a glorious welcome. All of that encourages us never to sit down and go backwards, to always be moving past milestones to other milestones, never allowing spiritual milestones to become millstones. So, let's look at these four motivations to ministry. Number one, a glorious win, the empowering reality of the resurrection. Verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel. Paul wants Timothy to resurrect his faltering resolve in the light of Christ's empty tomb. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Timothy, you serve a risen Savior, and He's in the world today. Tony Merida, in his book on 2 Timothy, gives us a phrase I think is worth remembering. Here's what Paul is saying in verse 8. Timothy, when, you're, when your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty. That's good, isn't it? When, the, when your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty. Rejuvenate yourself. Reinvigorate yourself by the thought that you serve a risen Savior, and He's in the world today. He lives he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And He walks with me, and He talks with me. And so, here we have this idea of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's in the present tense. It's something you need to do on an ongoing basis. And it's in the act of voice, which means it's your responsibility to remember. You have a gospel duty to remember that Jesus is risen. When your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty. The resurrection and the truth of Jesus Christ, raised, seated, coming again, is the continual focus of the Christian man and woman and the Christian minister. If we're going to stay alive spiritually, if we're going to turn into the headwinds of culture and ministry, you and I need to be alive to the fact that He's alive. This has got to be at the forefront of our thinking and our theology. Paul admonishes Timothy not to forget the unforgettable fact that death has died, Christ has risen, and according to 1 verse 10 of this letter, has brought light and life through the gospel. Christ's death changes how we live. Now, that's obvious. That's obvious. Who would forget the unforgettable? You, me, us. Let me take you to um, Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verses 19 and 21. And you're going to read some amazing verses that will remind you that it's possible for you and me to forget the unforgettable. Because here's what's said of the people of Israel. Verse 8, 7, 19, sorry, of Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. You don't think you can forget the unforgettable? They forgot the ten plagues for crying out loud. The darkness, death. 
the locusts. It's hard to imagine that within one generation that that had, that had faded in its memory and its everyday impact. Our, our ability to forget is legendary. I love the story of the, the three sisters, 92, 94, 96. They lived together, and one night the 96-year-old had, had drawn a bath, and she put one foot in. Then she paused, and she asked herself the question, was I getting in or was I getting out? Okay. This may be a little too close to home for some of you folks. Um, but then the 94-year-old uh, hollered back, I don't know, but I'll come up and see. So she started up the staircase on the first floor to the second floor. Halfway up, she paused and said, was I going up or was I coming down? The 92-year-old was sitting at the kitchen table having tea, listening to her sister. She shook her head in disbelief and said, I sure hope I never get that forgetful. And then she knocked on the wood of the table for good measure. Then she shouted up to her sisters, I'll come up and help both of you as soon as I see who's at the door. <laughs> All right. That's a little crazy. I'm not sure it happened, but it was fun to listen to it. Um, forgetting, the un- forgetting the unforgettable is possible. Human beings are forgetful. Christians are forgetful. Memory. It's it's so important. Spurgeon said a good memory is the handmaiden to faith. And Paul says to Timothy what? Remember. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And that emphasis, by the way, if you're going to remember something, remember that when your tank is empty, the tomb is empty. Remember that. Because this is an important doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3 puts the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ after three days, puts that at the head of the list of doctrines. It's called the doctrine of first importance. It's the capstone of every gospel, and it's the cornerstone of everyone's faith in Jesus Christ, and rightly so. Because without the truth that Jesus is risen, Christianity is a house of cards. Christianity is, is a paper tiger. And and Paul gets into that. He imagines, doesn't he? If Christ be not risen, then then our preaching is pointless. Our faith is futile. Death is unbowed. Sin is unforgiven. And you're suffering a waste of time. Because if we have only hope in this life, my friend, and we're suffering in cross-bearing, then we're to be pitied. What a pitiful sight of the Christian lay down his life for something that ends in death? Hmm. H.B. Charles, wonderful preacher in Atlanta, said in a sermon on the ascension at the Shepherds Conference in 217, I've never forgot this statement, Christianity is the only religion in the world where its adherents go to the tomb of its leader to make sure he's not there. Because if he's there, then our preaching's pointless. Our faith is futile, death is unbowed, sin is unforgiven, and our suffering is worthless. But he isn't there. Don't seek him among the dead. He's risen. And he's a source of strength and, and, and solace to his people. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, here's what's interesting about this as we try and wrap this first thought up. The resurrection in Paul's mind is to be viewed as a present experience. That's the point you want to get here. It's to be viewed as a present experience, okay? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a past event, all right? Historically, he died uh, uh, for us, Having died for our sins, he was buried and rose again. It's a past event, and it's a, it's, it's a future expectation. Because he lives, we shall live also. We've got the hope of being raised to a state of perfection and glory. So, so the resurrection of Jesus is tied to a past event. It's tied to a future expectation, but it is tied to a present experience. You and I have already shared in it because 
Christ, who's alive, has made us alive who were once dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, 1 and 6. And that glorious power that raised Him from the dead is now at work in us. It brought about our regeneration. We were dead in our sin, but through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, His presence and power is at work in us. It has brought us to faith in Jesus Christ, and it brings us on to greater faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to to, to Paul as he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union with Him as a present experience. In Ephesians 1, Um, while he's praying and and thinking about the Ephesians, he reminds them of this reality. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. A similar thought in Colossians 1 verse 11 as Paul prays for them. He says that you might be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember, he's raised, and he's at the right hand of God, but remember, he sent the Holy Spirit. And remember, the Holy Spirit is the power of God which was working in, in, in the resurrection of Jesus that's now working in you in your own resurrection from the graveyard of your sin. And now, not only are you saved from the penalty of sin, you are now being saved from the power of sin. And there's power and strength available to you. We can experience that power. In fact, this phrase is interesting. In Colossians um, 1 verse 11, Paul talks about this mighty power that it might be at work in us. Derek Tidball, in his um, commentary in Colossians, says something I think is worth repeating. By his might is glorious. His might is the might of a sovereign creator who brought the world into being out of nothing, of a miraculous savior who brought his oppressed people out of Egypt, of a majestic deity who showed himself in thunder and lightning in Sinai, of a triumphant life giver who brought Jesus back from the dead through the resurrection. We need have no fear that his resources will be inadequate. He can more than strengthen us for the task. We may be feeble and inadequate, but no matter, he is not. So remember, Jesus raised from the dead. That mighty power that raised him from the dead is at work in you. So we say to the culture, we look into history and we say, bring it on. Our sufficiency is not in ourselves, but it is in him. And and sometimes we don't live in, in that victory. We don't embrace the extent of the power that's available to us. We're living defeated, discouraged, directionless lives, and it shouldn't be. Our middle daughter, Laura, who would love to have been here today but couldn't, um, has over time had a fascination with with, uh, Chevrolet Corvettes. Not that she has one, not that she can afford one. But but, uh, this got out in our church at Kindred, and and so one of our friends, one of our deacons at the church, uh, Stan Longnacker, he purchased himself a couple of years ago uh, the Corvette Z06. If you know anything about this thing, I'll just give you the, the stats. It's got 650 horsepower. It goes not to 60 in three seconds, you know? That'll blow your toupee off. And, 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 it, and, and it'll, it, it can reach 200 miles an hour. Think about it. 650 horsepower, not to 63 seconds, 200 miles an hour. So Stan calls Laura up, hey, do you want to go a drive? So they head out, the top's off it. They're driving down to Newport Beach, and Stan drives her down there. And when they get to Newport Beach, they have lunch or something together. On the way back, for a little time, Stan says, do you want to drive? And so she sits in the driver's seat, heads up display on the windscreen. She's loving every minute of it, and she's driving, traveling back towards our house at, at 25 miles an hour. She's, she's frightened to death. She, she, she can feel the animal that she's riding on top of. And after a moment, Stan says, hey, put your foot down. So she kind of guns it a little bit and speeds up, and she goes, wow. And then she backs off, and 
Stan says, do you realize you get up to 40 miles an hour? <laughs> and we, we've kept her going ever since then. She's, she's driven a Corvette. She's fulfilled one of her dreams of life and didn't take it any more than 40 miles an hour. It's got a top speed of 200. It's got 650 horsepower. And, and we have laughed at it. And then, we, then, 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 the, then the, the joke kind of turns on us. You know, some of us, on any given day, it can be me. We're trundling along the road of life at 40 miles an hour when Jesus can take us to 200. There's power. There's grace. There's a sufficiency that we haven't, haven't tested, haven't, haven't drawn on. So let's keep up the good work and understand a glorious win that allows us to be more than conquerors through him that loves us. Number two, a glorious word. I'll speed up here. A glorious word, the unstoppable power of the gospel. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, for, for which I, I, I suffer trouble in relation to what? In relation to the gospel. My gospel, that just he, he, he means he's made it his own. It's personal. Luther says that true Christianity is, is marked by personal pronouns. I hope the gospel's your gospel. And this gospel, Paul suffers for. In fact, he's been designated by the Romans as a troublemaker, an evildoer, even to the point where he's been arrested. He's now in chains. But the Word of God is not chained. Amen? Amen. The Word of God's not chained. We've got a glorious win, a risen Savior. Now we've got a glorious word, an unstoppable gospel. Paul wants to steal the resolve of Timothy by reminding him that despite attempts to thwart the gospel, the Word of God is triumphing in the world. The messenger of the gospel can be in, put in chains, but the message of the gospel can never be chained. That's his point. So it's a wonderful thing. Paul's suffering the indignity of wearing chains, and they're treating him like an evildoer. This Greek word evildoer is the word that's used in Luke 23, 32 to 33, of the criminals on the cross next to Jesus, hardened criminals, mob men. And Paul's being treated like your common criminal, and, and unlike his first imprisonment, this one was much harsher. See, in his first imprisonment, we, we read from Acts 28, he was under house arrest. Friends could come and go. Uh, he was preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. His living conditions were decent. His opportunities to preach the gospel were, were many, and he, and he had this sense in writing to the Philippines that he would soon be released, but not, not this time. Uh, he's in a cold, dark dungeon. Some of us have been there. I have in the city of Rome. He's virtually alone. Maybe Luke is with him. And the opportunities are, are more restricted, and he anticipates his execution. But nevertheless, he wants Timothy to know, but the Word of God's not chained. The point is that Paul's incar in incarceration was not an impediment to gospel ministry. Um, in fact, in chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, listen to what he says. At my first defense, no one stood with me, for all forsook me, may it not be charged against him. But the Lord stood with me, the risen Lord, giving me the grace. He strengthened me. I'm still accelerating in my Christian life so that the message might be fully preached through me to all the Gentiles that might hear. And he's delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. What was going on in the second imprisonment is the same thing that went on in the first imprisonment. It's a great study. We just finished a series at our church called Ready, Steady, Grow. We kind of hopped and jumped across the book of Acts and looked at passages that show us how the New Testament church accelerated. And one of the phrases that you'll find constantly in the book of Acts is the Word of God increased and the disciples multiplied. The Word of God prevailed and the church grew. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Acts, in the Greek of Acts. It finishes with an adverb, which is unusual grammatically, but it's making a theological point. The last word in the Greek New Testament in the book of Acts is unhindered. That's how the book of Acts ends, unhindered. I'm, I'm teaching and preaching the kingdom of God under house arrest, unhindered. It's an unstoppable gospel. 
There's power in the Word of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, my friend. It is the power of God unto salvation. The words that spoke the world into existence. Because the Bible tells us the creation came about by God's Word. We read in John 1, 1 to 3, the Word was Christ and He created all things. The words that spoke the world into existence cannot hold it ransom. This world was created by the Word. Do you think anything in the world can stop the Word? Come on. Connect some dots theologically. The gospel is triumphant. It can't be silenced. It can't be stopped. The gospel advances with irrepressible, irresistible divine power. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. The Word of God will not return unto God void, but will accomplish that to which it was sent. There's a divine energy that's tied in to the Word of God that makes it unstoppable. Think about it. The Word of God is not bound by time or space. There's been people who have been saved 10 years after hearing a sermon, but 10 years later, God reminds them of the sermon, and the Word of God can't be bound by time or space, and they get saved remembering a sermon they listened to but didn't listen to 10 years earlier. You can't bind God's Word by time or space. By the way, if you're a Sunday school teacher, remember that. As you sow the Word of God into the lining of a five-year-old soul or a six-year-old soul or a seven-year-old soul, it won't be bound by time and space. God's Word won't return unto, unto, unto Him void. Hopefully, you'll have the experience that many have had 10, 15 years later, someone comes up and reminds them that they're not a Christian and you taught me the Word of God. The Word of God is not bound by hard hearts, okay? The Word of God is not bound by evil times. The Word of God is not bound by Satan. The Word of God is not bound by censorship. And the Word of God is not bound by inept preaching, thankfully. I love the story of Spurgeon's conversion. Do you know it? January the 6th, 1850, that was the night the prince of preachers got saved, and he was saved by an inept preacher, humanly speaking. It was a really cold night in Clochester, England. Hard-biting blizzard had come in. Most of the worshipers had stayed at home. And in a little primitive Methodist church in Artillery Street, a dozen people showed up, just 12. And a young guy, young boy, 15, ducked into the back. Spurgeon was meant to be somewhere else, but he couldn't get there because of the blizzard. So he ducked into this primitive Methodist church. And because the pastor couldn't get there that night, an unlettered man rose up and halteringly and falteringly, he preached from Isaiah 45, 22. Look to the ends of the earth and be saved. And he pointed to the young man at the back who he didn't recognize and told him he looked miserable. And he needed to look to Jesus to be saved. And that night Spurgeon did. I think the sermon lasted about 10 minutes. The guy ran out of material at about three minutes and just recycled it several times. <laughs> terrible, terrible, you know? But here's what Spurgeon said later in life. Don't hold back because you cannot preach in St. Paul's. Be content to talk to one or two in a cottage. You may cook in small pots as well as big ones. Little pigeons can carry big messages. Even a little dog can bark at a thief and wake up the master and save the house. Do what you do right thoroughly. Pray over it heartily and leave the results to God. The prince of preachers was saved by an inept preacher because you can't bind God's Word. It's not bound by time or space, hard hearts, evil times, Satan, censorship, ineptness. A third thing, a glorious work. A glorious work. Keep up the good work. Don't be sitting down here at Placerita and going backwards. This is a milestone. Don't let it become a millstone. And so the third encouragement to you this morning is a glorious work. Give yourself to the hard and joyful work of evangelism. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of God's elect. 
that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's the glorious work. The joy of seeing God's elect come to faith. I was just reading the last sermon that Spurgeon, having talked about him, preached at his college for young preachers in London. This was the last sermon he ever preached. Listen to these words. We are rowing like lifeboat men upon a stormy sea, and we are hurrying to yonder rack where men are perishing. If we may not draw that old rack to shore, we will at least by the power of God rescue the perishing, save life, and bear the redeemed to the shores of salvation. Our mission, like our Lord's, is to gather out the chosen of God from among men, that they may live to the glory of God. Every saved man should be under God a Savior. That's a striking statement, isn't it? Are you a Savior? Mother, are you a Savior to your children? Are you a savior to your neighbor? Are you a savior to the person you work with, the person you play soccer or sports with? Every saved man should be under God a savior, and the church is not in a right state until she has reached that conception of herself. The elect church is saved that she may save. The elect church is saved that she may save. Exactly what Paul's on about here. He says, I'm about the business of seeing the elect saved. So much so that I've suffered many things so that that can happen. Did you notice that? Paul's witness for Christ was costly. I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Verse 9, verse 10, I endure all things for what do you, why do you do that, Paul? Why do you put up with that nonsense? Why do you, why do you take the arrows I do it for the elect. I, I suffer for the elect's sake. It's not for me. It's for them. If I don't suffer, if I don't press ahead, if I don't take the arrows, I back off, and the Word of God that, that can't be preached to those that need to hear it, and, and, and therefore, you know what? I'm impeding God's work. Paul, if you want to read what he suffered, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two to 29 starvation, shipwreck, so on and so forth. It tells us in Philippians 3, verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things. How's that for a measure this morning? I've suffered the loss of all things, but I count him worthy. He lost friends, gained enemies, imperiled his life, suffered imprisonments, was a target for satanic attack. But Paul thought it was worth it because through it, he became the means of winning souls to Christ. There was blessing through his buffeting, and lives were touched through his dying. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish divine, ministered in the northeast coast of Scotland in Aberdeen and suffered many things throughout his ministry, was exiled by the British crown on several occasions. He wrote a hymn, Emmanuel's land. You should look it up. There's a little phrase in it. If, if one soul from Anworth was where he ministered, if one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. That's where Paul's at. Paul's faithfulness for the sake of the elect brought about God's blessing in many people's lives. Who are the elect? The elect are those whom God has chosen unto salvation who are not yet saved but will be saved. It's a simple definition of the elect. The elect are those whom God has chosen to salvation who are not yet saved but who will be saved. But they cannot be saved without the preaching of the gospel. Right? Romans 10. How can they hear if someone doesn't come and speak? But let me add something to that. Not only will they not be saved unless there's preaching that takes place, often they won't be saved unless there's suffering that comes alongside the preaching. I like what Thomas Schreiner at Southern Baptist Seminary says about this idea where Paul says, I suffer for the elect's sake. It's important to hear this. We should not conceive of Paul as engaging in mission and experiencing the unfortunate consequences of suffering in the process as if his difficulties were unrelated to his mission. 
On the contrary, the pain Paul endured was the means by which the message of the gospel was extended. Suffering was not a side effect of the Pauline mission. Rather, it was the very center of apostolic evangelism. His distress validated and legitimized the message. He demonstrated the truth of the suffering Christ. Don't think that Paul's evangelizing and he just happens to suffer. He's preaching a suffering Savior. In a world that rejected Christ and will reject Him, if you're going to preach the suffering Savior, you're going to suffer. And your suffering is not tangential. Your suffering is actually a validating and a legitimizing of the gospel you preach. And Paul did that, and God used it in a wonderful way. And and, and as one writer said, what would have happened if Paul had not endured? If he, like Demas, had proved traitor to the gospel? Humanly speaking, the elect would not have heard the gospel, and the stream of truth would have been dammed up. This is where you're going to have to hold something in theological attention. God chooses the elect. God will see that the elect is saved. But the implication of this text is if you and I don't do the work of evangelism and and we're not willing to pay the price of preaching the gospel faithfully, people won't be saved. Paul says, it's his words, that the elect may obtain. I got to do this for them to obtain salvation. Because the God who chooses the elect chooses the means of their salvation, and that's preaching. And it's preaching that comes with suffering. So the question is, will you and I be faithful? Will this church be faithful? We know the elect will be saved. That's not the question. I'll tell you what the question is. Will we be the means of their salvation? Will we be faithful? That means preaching when you're tired. That means pushing past discouragement. That means facing criticism and censorship. That means bearing gospel reproach. That means upsetting the status quo. That means believing God in the face of unbelief. That means risking your wealth and your health. Let me tell you the story of Martin McCartland, and I'll make my last point very short because time's gone. Mentioned earlier, I spent some time in the RUC in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. We were fighting with the IRA who were trying to sever Northern Ireland from its, its link with the United Kingdom. And for four years, Martin McCartland lived a remarkable double life. Um, to his, to his, his wife and his children, he was known as a loving husband and a doting father. To the IRA, he was a trusted intelligence officer in an IRA terrorist unit. To the British, he was Agent Carroll because he had turned. By night, he helped plan bombs and shootings of innocent people. By day, he passed on details of further planned terrorism until his cover was blown. The IRA snatched him, took him to West Belfast. They were going to interrogate him brutally, and then they were going to murder him. And while he, his feet and his hands were tied, he, he had a moment when he bounced like a bunny towards a window and out through the window. Didn't, it was curtains on the window, so he didn't realize it, but he was three floors up. And he fell, fell three floors under the concrete, but thankfully the police and the, the army were looking for him, and they whisked him away. In fact, years later, under even protection, the IRA hunted him down and shot him six times, and he survived. His story's amazing. It's been written into a book and a movie. I don't necessarily recommend them because they're pretty brutal. But the, the title of the book and the movie fascinates me. It's called 50 Dead Men Walking because it's believed that Martin McCartland saved 50 soldiers, 50 policemen, 50 civilians by the information he passed on at the threat of his own life. many dead people are walking because of you and me, those who are dead in their sin? But through our faithfulness, our gospel stubbornness and sweetness, God has graciously used us to obtain salvation in the lives of the elect. Here's the last thought. Bear with me. 
a glorious welcome. I'll kind of condense this. Verses 11 through 13, the promise of eternal reward to you and me. This is, this is uh, Paul's benediction. It's, it's one of his faithful sayings. You'll find that phrase throughout Paul's writings, and it usually connotes either the summary of a doctrine or something he wants to emphasize as important. And so here's what we have got in verses 11 through 13. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. He's just talked about suffering for the sake of the elect. And now he comes to sweeten the pot, so to speak. Here's he wants you to know, suffering's worth it. Suffering's worth it. People get saved. Suffering's worth it. And you get rewarded. Suffering's worth it. You get eternal reward. The cross-bearing that lasts for so many years gives way to crown-wearing that lasts forever. Please remember that, Timothy, as you keep up the good work. Endurance in the ministry requires a robust eschatology. At this point, one of my daughters is whispering in my ear, Dad, when you use one of those big words, would you please explain it? What's eschatology? It's the doctrine of the last things. It's the doctrine of the second coming, hell, heaven, eternity, the millennium, the rapture, the antichrist. If you're going to endure in ministry, you need to have a robust eschatology. And the surprise of today is most church people aren't interested in eschatology, and especially young people. And there may be reasons for that. But, but, but Paul will tell you and as he dies and draws his last breath, you know what? One of the things that motivated me was the crown that was laid up for me. And not just for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. You see, if you love his appearing, your love for him will help you suffer. And Paul argues that. Don't become a victim of self-pity because your enduring hope is in Christ. Martyrdom opens the door to eternal life. Gospel endurance leads to millennial blessings. Regardless of our present circumstances or challenges, there's so much to look forward to. That's why Romans 8 verse 17, that the suffering that we experience right now is nothing to be compared with the glory that awaits us. Similar thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. This, this momentary light affliction doesn't seem like that, by the way, when you're in it, but compared to eternity, that's exactly what it is. It's a moment. Can't you endure for a moment? Can't you keep up the good work for a moment? Because on the other side of that moment, we will see the unseen and enjoy the enduring so as I close, Paul is reminding Timothy there's so much to look forward to, so keep going forward. There's eternal glory, verse 10. There's living with Christ, verse 11. There's reigning with Christ, the millennial kingdom, verse 12. The Christian endures knowing that what is is nothing to be compared with what will be. Um... So as we close, listen to these words from Tim Chester, an English pastor. Your suffering and your shame are for a moment. Your reward is forever. The area in which you live now is for a moment. The location where you will spend eternity is forever. Your temptations and your sin are for a moment. Hell is forever. Your pride and your achievements are for a moment. God's glory is forever. Your career is for a moment. God's well done is forever. Your love and life and your sex experience are for a moment. Your union with Christ is forever. Your home nigh is for a moment. Your home in heaven and the Father's house is forever. Your money and possessions are for a moment. Your heavenly treasure is forever. Your pension is for a moment. Your heavenly inheritance forever. John Hooper, a Protestant during the reign of Bloody Mary, was martyred, and a friend urged him on the eve of his burning to renounce his faith. And his friend said to John Hooper, 
John, life is sweet. Death is bitter. To which John Huber, the Protestant, replied, eternal life is more sweet and eternal death more bitter. Hmm. If we live with him, if we die for him and with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. I started with the sporting analogy. You know, we're not going to have any sports at Clemson where you sit down and go backwards. Um, maybe one quick one to close with. I'm, I'm a big fan of Nick Saban, although I'm a Buckeye. It's hard not to admire a man who's now on to his sixth national championship, chasing a seventh. But you know the, the Saban rule. Saban's got a rule. It's the 24-hour rule. I watched him live on ESPN. I think it was his fifth national championship. And, and, and they asked him how long he was going to enjoy it and celebrate it. You know what he said? 24 hours, and then it's back to work. And you can Google that and look it up. That's his rule, 24 hours. Enjoy today for 24 hours. And then get back to work and keep up the good work. Because there's a glorious win there's a glorious word, there's a glorious work, and there's a glorious welcome. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for our time in, in your word this morning that we trust will act as spiritual smelling salts to awaken us to our gospel responsibilities as we have mouthed uh, a fresh dedication to you to, to use these beautiful suite of buildings for gospel ends. We thank you that marriages will be made here and consecrated here. Children will be discipled here, brought up in the faith through the wisdom of Scripture. Well, thank you, these young people from the Master's University can be schooled and mentored. We thank you the gospel will be preached. We thank you that from this place, partnerships have forged that reach out across the world. Lord, we dedicate ourselves afresh to keep up the good work. We thank you for the power of the risen Christ that's surging in the church today. May we plug in. Oh, we thank you for the unstoppable gospel. We thank you that the elect will be saved as the Word of God is preached and we pay a price in our preaching. We thank you it's all going to be worth it. Whatever the scars, whatever the wounds, the tiredness, the frustration, the persecution, the mockery. Thank you, it's all going to be worth it because life, eternal life is better and eternal death more bitter. And we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.